In Revelation 2 and 3 are seven letters that our Lord wrote to seven churches in Asia Minor. And we have talked very specifically about the fact that those were seven literal, very real churches that existed in that part of the world during the time when the Apostle John wrote approximately the year 90 A.D., 90 to 95 A.D., somewhere in there. But as you take the whole of the book of Revelation and you begin to divide the Word of God as we've been instructed to do in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, it tells us that we are to rightly divide the Word of Truth. And as we do that, we see that according to how that God has divided the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, and Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, what we find is that there is a doctrinal or prophetic application of these seven letters to seven periods of church history. This is not something that I invented. I'm not the first one to, to stumble across that. Do I think that in 90 A.D. that all of the believers that got a hold of these letters understood, oh, yes, there's a prophetic application of these letters, and and these are going to create for us all seven periods of church history from now until the Lord comes back. I don't believe that they understood that. But now, in fact, if you go back to the book of Daniel, what you'll find out is, and Daniel very much correlates with the book of Revelation, and what you'll find out is Daniel comes down to the end. He's been the one that's actually been writing all of this stuff, And he says, now, Lord, what does all this stuff mean? And the Lord says, hey, just save it, Daniel, because you're not going to understand it. This has been sealed until the time of the end. And you see, now we can look back and we can look at Daniel's prophecy because we are indeed living in those end times. And now we can see the nation of Israel in the land. We can see the European common market on the scene. We can look at those things and we can go, oh, so this is what he was talking about back here. And it's the same thing with the seven letters to the seven churches. Historically, I mean, we can, we're standing at this point now, and we can look back, and what we find is that God has given us a very definite outline to be able to interpret the events of history as they've unfolded from the time of approximately 90 to 95 A.D. all the way to the rapture of the church, which, again, is found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, where there is a trumpet, there is a sound, Heaven opens, a believer in Jesus Christ, John in this case, is caught up to be with the Lord. It's exactly what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about. But to really understand what is taking place in these seven letters, and we are now to the sixth of these letters, the church at Philadelphia. But to really understand what's taking place and what has been taking place, what you've got to understand is is that in the early history of the church that God details for us in the book of Acts. Now, you see, we've got got Revelation 2 and 3 that's going to give us all of the church history, but it picks up basically where the book of Acts leaves off. And so if we're going to really understand the events of history, what we've got to do is we've got to go back to the book of Acts and get our bearings and, and understand some things there and then grab a hold of that and begin to funnel that through what we see in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And what you find in the book of Acts is that there are very, or two very distinct lines of believers that are developing. This is on your study sheet now. This is where we're going to pick up. There is a true line. There is a biblical line, and that line flows out of Antioch of Syria. There is also a false line, a non-biblical line, a satanic counterfeit line, 
and it very distinctly flows out of Alexandria, Egypt. And what's interesting is if you go to the book of Acts and let the Bible be the Bible, what you're going to find is that God lets you know some very interesting things about those two places. What you find in Antioch is that one of the first deacons was from Antioch. The first great Gentile awakening was in Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The first Bible teachers were in the church at Antioch. The first missionaries were sent from the church at Antioch. And what you find in the book of Acts is every single thing that in the entire book that is related to Antioch of Syria is always, always a positive context. Then on the other hand, there is Alexandria, Egypt, and every single thing that you find in the book of Acts that defines church history for us, every single thing that you find about Alexandria, Egypt, every time it is a negative context. It was Alexandrians who were a part of the group who disputed with Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Alexandria is connected with bad Bible teaching. And it is a ship from Alexandria, listen, that takes Paul to Rome and his ultimate death. And what you find is that little connection right there between Alexandria, Egypt, and Rome, you better keep your eye on that thing because what you find historically is that line that you trace out of Alexandria runs right through Rome and it becomes the Roman Catholic Church. Now let me just let me just say this to you because we're going to we're going to mention that name quite a few times and I understand that we're living in a period of time where people don't like to be confrontational, they don't like to be you know stirred when it comes to to things like this. Now folks, listen. All we're seeking to do is let the Bible be the Bible and identify what the Bible identifies historically for us. And what we've seen over the past several weeks as we've been working our way through these these seven letters to the seven churches is that God shows us in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Roman Catholic Church is the synagogue of Satan that you see in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. And Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, it is that woman Jezebel. Or in other words, it is that false system that Satan will use through the church age to counterfeit in the name of being Christian, the true church of Jesus Christ. It is the counterfeit. And what we've done is we've, we've begun to trace that line. And then on the other hand, we've taken the true line. And over the past couple of weeks, we've shown you that when that crowd out of Alexandria, Egypt, started leaving, as it talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3, when they started leaving, the wholesome words of the Scripture, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and began to teach otherwise, what you find is that there was a group of Bible believers who held fast the faithful word as they had been taught. They held fast that form of sound words and sound doctrine that Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus and said, make sure that you do not let out of your grasp those sound words and that sound doctrine. And there was a line of Bible-believing people who never, ever, ever became a part 
of the Roman Catholic Church. They stood true to the faith. And there has always been, we talked about this in great detail last week, even in the absolute darkest period of the dark ages, there has always been God's faithful few who, even though they were hated and slandered and misrepresented and maligned and imprisoned, robbed, persecuted, tortured, and murdered, they would not dip their colors. Or as it puts it in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4, they would not defile their garments. They would die before becoming a part of the Roman Catholic Church or embracing any of her doctrines. I've listed them for you on your study sheet. I'm not going to go through all of the names. We hit on this in detail last week. There are the Montanists, the Novatians, the Donatists, the Paulicians, the Bogomiles, the Cathari, the Waldenses, and then they become called the, the Anabaptists. And finally, around 1600, they drop the Anna off of the title, which means against baptism, against the baptism of the state church, and they just began to be called Baptist. And folks, you look at that list this morning, and what that is, is our heritage. That's our roots right there. Those are men and women who suffered and died, listen, to put this very Bible in our hands. A Bible that has been bought and paid for with the blood of 50 million martyrs. And I've said it before, and I want to say it again. We are sitting in this room this morning with this book in our hands, and the Lord Jesus Christ, not in some stained window in this building, and not hidden behind some sacraments of, of a church, but we have Him in our hearts alive this morning because those people right there not only had the truth, but what they did is they held the truth. And they had the guts and the spiritual fortitude to be able to look at that system and say, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what you do, we know who you are. We know that you are the mother of harlots. We know that you are the church of the Antichrist. And we will never, ever, ever be a part of your system in any way, shape, or form. And for the last several weeks, we've been coming down through the outline of, of the Thyatira and Sardis church periods. It, it's, it's a period of time referred to in history as the Dark Ages. And it's called the Dark Ages because the Bible says in Psalm 119 and verse 130, the entrance of thy word giveth light. And the Dark Ages was a period of time on this planet from approximately 500 A.D., to 1500 A.D., when the Roman Catholic Church totally dominated the world, and under their domination, the Word of God was banned. I mean, they actually said that one of the most dangerous things that could happen would be for the common man to read the Bible, because you know what would happen when the common man reads the Bible? He might get saved. You know what he might do? He might read this Bible and he might start to do the dastardly deed of trying to interpret it without them. You see, and that's a big problem. And by the time you, you get to the end of the Sardis period, folks, listen, the world is so black that you cannot see your hand in front of your face. And then, 
all of a sudden, man, it happens. I mean, bam, something happens in the Philadelphian church period. And you know what? I don't want to tell, tell you what it is just yet. Because some of you, if I, if I just flat out said it right now, some of you would turn a deaf ear to everything else I'm going to say. So I'm going to work it just a little bit. <laughs> you wouldn't hear anything else. But I'm, I'm telling you this. Something happens on this planet. And all of a sudden, out of the midst of all of that darkness, all of a sudden, this world, for some reason, is sitting in blazing light. I mean, it goes from one extreme to the other. It's so black, you, you can't even see that there's a door. And then all of a sudden, man, the door is flung open and the light of the glorious gospel of Christ shines out all over the earth. And the Philadelphian church period is absolutely the greatest period in church history. It's the time of the greatest preaching. It's the time of the greatest revivals. It's the time of the greatest missionary movements. And one of the things that I want to make sure that we do this morning is I want to make sure that we all understand just what it was that actually prompted this period, what it was that was the real driving force behind what was going on. Because most people think that the key to the Philadelphian church period was the Reformation. Now listen. The Reformation played a part in the gloriousness of that Philadelphian period, it had an important part. It just didn't have the part that most Christians think that it had. Listen, the problem with the Reformers and the Reformation was just that. All of these, these Reformers, what they were doing is they were seeking a Reformation of the Roman Catholic Church. When the answer to the problem that we have seen in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, God says, as He writes through these periods of church history, the answer is not Reformation. The answer was a rejection of the Roman Catholic Church and a return to Bible Christianity. But now remember, as we saw just a couple of minutes ago, and we went into great detail last week, there has always been that line, who never left. Bible Christianity. But you see, what we're going to find out is that those are the men and the women who are the real driving force behind that period. Not the Reformers. It's the Bible believers. But, but let's do this for just a second. Let, let's just back up in our minds and let's just kind of go to the last part of that, that Sardis period. Somewhere around the, the 1300s. Okay? So we're living back in the 1300s right now, and understand this, the Roman Catholic Church has established itself throughout all of Europe. It held the people, and it held the nations in absolute darkness and despair and domination. But then all of a sudden, something begins to happen. In England, God begins to move in the heart of a Roman Catholic priest by the name of John Wycliffe. He is known in history as the morning star of the Reformation. You, you can see a prophetic reference to that in Revelation chapter 2 and, and verse 28. Now understand this. He's just the morning star. He's a reformer. There are going to be others. John Huss in, in Bohemia, which is modern-day Czechoslovakia. 
uh, Jerome Savanarola in Italy, Martin Luther in Germany, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, John Calvin in Geneva, John Knox in Scotland. And these are all Roman Catholics. And what these guys are doing is they're, they're seeking a reformation of the Catholic Church. And what they begin to do is these men begin to preach against the Catholic Church. Now, they're priests, but they begin to preach against it. And what you begin to see them do is they begin to preach against the Pope. And ultimately, they find out there is going to be no reforming of this church. And what they begin to do is they begin to split out. And this is where you see the Protestant denominations come in. Martin Luther, of course, gave way to the, the Lutheran church. And Zwingli and Calvin gave way to the Presbyterian church. And John Knox, the church of Scotland. And that's where all of these groups begin to come in. Now understand this. These reformers that we're talking about, and this is just a small little sampling of a list, understand that. But these men, they're all saved. But don't kid yourself for a minute about these guys. You see, though, though Luther and, and Zwingli and Calvin got a hold of some Baptist doctrine, there wasn't a one of those guys that had any tolerance whatsoever toward that Bible-believing line that we just came through a couple of minutes ago. And you know what they thought they ought to do with those people? The same thing their mother thought. They thought they ought to be killed. You want to see? You, last week I, I told you, don't dare call me a Protestant. I'm not a Protestant. You're not a Protestant either if you believe what the Bible believes, and if you trace your heritage back the way that we trace our back back through a group who was never a part of that that system. Let me tell you, those Protestants. They would kill you for what you believe, just as sure as, as, as Mama did. And something you, you need to know, as, as, if you're really understanding what we went through last week in Revelation chapter 17, if you really understand what's going on in these last days of the church age, moving into the time of the rapture and, and then obviously the, the subsequent tribulation period, if you understand Revelation 17, what you know to be looking for is for all of these denominations that came out of the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation, you know to be looking for them to turn themselves back to the Mother Church when they think that the Mother Church has been reformed. What's going to happen is you're going to see all of these groups begin heading home to Mama. Okay, and what's wild right now is that the Roman Catholic Church on this planet is in the process, just like it talks about in Job chapter 41 in verse 13, the Roman Catholic Church is in the midst of changing its garments to give the appearance of reformation. And listen, with this whole unity thing that the so-called Christianity of our day is clamoring for right now, listen, when they think that the mother church has been reformed, you're going to see all of them start heading back to mama. In fact, it's already happening. It happened this week. The Lutheran church is beginning to make their way back into the mother of harlots. In fact, Robert Schuler, the pastor of the Crystal Cathedral Garden Grove Community Church in Garden Grove, California, in the September 19, 1987 issue of the the Los Angeles Herald Examiner said this. Now, this is ten years ago, guys. It's time for Protestants... Now, you understand who he's talking about? 
the people who came out of the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation, the people who were protesting the Roman Catholic Church, he said it's time for Protestants to go to the shepherd, which in the context of the article is the Pope, and say, what do we have to do to come home? Folks, it's exactly what is going to take place all over on this planet. We see it happening now. And by Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4 and 5, what you see is during the tribulation period, the one world church of the Antichrist is this woman Jezebel, the synagogue of Satan, the Roman Catholic Church. Man, I'm telling you, you know what? History isn't really that hard to figure out if you just believe the Bible. And if you just let the Bible be the Bible. But as the Philadelphian period is getting started, we've got this, this Reformation movement that's going on. And again, it's, it's a good thing. There's some good things that are going to happen, but that's really not the key. Okay, But there's, there's something else that's been going on. We mentioned John Wycliffe, and of all of the Reformers, he, he, is, he would be the one that would be tolerant toward what, what we believe. Those other guys... Uh, they, they wouldn't. But John Wycliffe comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. He starts getting into the Bible and, and seeing what the Bible actually taught. He, he, he takes away all of this religiousness of Rome and he begins to just see what the Bible says. And immediately he become, becomes vocal against the authority of the Pope. He, he becomes vocal against the, the authority of the Roman Catholic hierarchy. And what he begins to do is he begins to expose to the English-speaking people, he begins to expose them to the fact that the doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church used to keep them trapped in their system, he begins to tell the people these are unbiblical. And he becomes vocal against salvation by works and, and uh, the, the, the selling of indulgences and transubstantiation, which we've talked about as the damnable teaching that in the Mass... The priest has the mystical black magic power to transform the substance of the bread and the water into the uh, bread and the wine into the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as a result of this mystical power that he's working up here, receiving Christ then isn't by receiving Jesus Christ by grace through faith. What it becomes is eating a wafer and drinking a shot of hooch. And here he is, and this dude is preaching against all of this stuff. He comes out, and I mean, he's strong. You think I'm strong this morning. Man, Wycliffe, when he got a hold of what this book was really saying, I mean, he, he's, he's dead set against it. And finally, after all of the preaching and all of the things that he's going through, finally, he, he, he starts writing material. And, and, and he's writing this material. He's trying to get all of this out. He's preaching against it. He's exposing the system for what it is. And after all of that, he comes to the conclusion that the only thing that could really break the power that the Roman Catholic Church used to enslave them was to get the Bible into the hands and into the language of the people and begin to let its power, the power of the Word of God, be unleashed to free them from that bondage. So with the help of some friends, Wycliffe began the work of translating. And what he does, folks, don't make any bones about it. He grabs a hold of the line of manuscripts that comes out of Antioch. That's where he does his work. And he begins the work of translating from that line out of Antioch. And by 1380, 
The New Testament was complete. By 1382, the Old Testament was complete. And for the first time in human history, there was an English translation of the Bible on the earth. Now, folks, understand that that was no small thing. I mean, listen, do you understand the implications of that? I mean, that would have been in direct violation of the state church. And I mean, listen, can you imagine the the work that went into that? And, And of course, once it was done, any copies that were made were made by hand. I mean, it wasn't, you know, we've got study sheets all over this room this morning that, you know what, just a couple of hours ago, they weren't even in existence. <laughs> there was no copy machines back then. Every, I understand, there wasn't even a printing press. Any copy of the Scripture was, was made by hand. And, and to make just one copy, do you understand, it took ten solid months. And so during this period of time, listen, copies were, were certainly limited and, and really too expensive for the common man for whom it was written in the first place. And so Wycliffe, feeling the burden of that, and saying, how are we going to get this book out? What he begins to do is he begins to train young men out of his church to take that book and go out through the entire nation of England preaching the truth from village to village. It was a group of men called Lollards. L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S. Lollards. The word means babblers. That's what they were called by the Roman Catholic Church. But now listen. The influence of that Bible, the influence that thing was having, as these poor preachers were going out and just busting that, that book, listen, let me tell you, that the influence it was having was absolutely unbelievable. And the Roman Catholic Church hated Wycliffe for it. They hated his Bible. In fact, Rome said this, listen, I I quote, Wycliffe, by thus translating the Bible, made it the property of the masses and common to all, and even women who were able to read. The Gospel is thrown before sinners and trodden underfoot, and that which used to be so dear to both clergy and laity has become a joke. Listen, the precious gem of the clergy has become common to the laity. Amen. Listen, that's a great place for an amen because that was the greatest thing that happened in this world is God put this book in the language that common men like me and you could grab a hold of it and find out what the God of this universe is really all about and what it is that He's really looking for. And let me tell you, Rome didn't want that. They didn't like that. And they so hated Wycliffe. And and, and what you find out is that that book and the Lollards and the influence, 44 years after he is dead, that book, is still having influence. It's still changing lives. And, 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 and the, the Roman Catholic Church hated him so much that the Pope demanded... Now, this is 44 years after the dude died. The Pope says, I want you to go dig up his bones and we're burning him at the stake. This is a fact of history. And after 44 years in the grave, don't you know that Wycliffe was coming out saying, Oh, no, anything but this. Oh, no, not burned at the stake. 
And for 143 years, that was the only English Bible in England or on the earth for that matter. But you need to understand what's, what's really happening here. You see, God knows that for a period of approximately 400 years prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the universal language on this planet is going to be English. Now, we know that because we have the last 400 years to look back on now. Okay? We can look at that and we understand that. And there's no doubt about what the universal language is. Just, just travel internationally and find out. Just listen on the airplanes and, and, and to, to the language that the people that are flying it, just listen to what every one of them, every one of them, every one of them, listen to the language every one of them are talking. English. God knew what was going to happen in that last 400-year period before his return. He knew what the language was going to be. And something interesting is that in Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, God gives an incredible statement and promise concerning his word and his words. He says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And some may think it merely coincidence, but what you find historically, folks, is that there were, count them, seven English Bibles in which God's Word was being purified before God's preserved Word for English-speaking people was unleashed on this planet in 1611 called the King James Bible. And you see them listed for you on your study sheet. The Wycliffe Bible of 1382, the Tyndale Bible of 1525, the Coverdale Bible, 1535, the Matthew Bible, 1537, the Great Bible, 1539, the Geneva Bible, 1560, the Bishop's Bible, 1568, and of course culminating with the King James Version of 1611, which is recognized on this planet for the last 400 years as the authorized version. And let me just, let me just pull all of those components together for you to illustrate what was really taking place as God launched the Philadelphian church period. Now, you guys know that in my younger days, I played a little bit of football. And the best way that I can see what was going on during this period of time in history is it was a lot like a football game. Now, understand this. The Roman Catholic Church has always been the enemy of the true church of Jesus Christ. They have always been bent on on, on keeping the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ from being unleashed in the world. So as you can see on your study sheet, the Roman Catholic Church is the defense. Okay? Now for you ladies, the, the defense are the ones with the these. Okay? Okay, now, now check this out. The reformers come out of the Roman Catholic Church. And they, they become the line or the blockers on the offense to stalemate the power of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the sinner, that's the guy that hikes the ball. Okay, the sinner is the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is the quarterback. The ball is the gospel. Okay? The goal is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, the Lord Jesus Christ walks up to the line. He lifts up the towel. And He calls the play. 16! 11! Hey! B, hunt, hunt. The 
Holy Spirit snaps the gospel. Okay, The reformers block out the Roman Catholic Church. The Lord Jesus Christ drops back. He hands the gospel to the Anabaptists. They take that ball around to the end and make a beeline for the goal line to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, <laughs> Amen, God! Now that's what's going on as we enter into the Philadelphian church period. I finally got it down to something we can, we can understand, right? Okay, and of course, this is the period that is outlined for us. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. It represents the period of time around 1500 to around 1900. And you remember with each of these names, remember we talked about the fact of its significance? The name Philadelphia, and we, we know this because of the city that we live in and because of the city by that same name in our own country, the name Philadelphia means brotherly love. And you, and you remember what that name was? What, what, with each of these churches, God gives the church in that period of time, He gives it a word that represents what he looked at during that period of time and what he saw. And God looks at this period and the one word word capsulization that he uses to describe this period is Philadelphia or brotherly love. And I'll tell you what, boy, this, 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 oh, when you, if you can see this, this is, this is good. We're living in a time right now in Christianity, folks, when brotherly love is defined by your willingness to compromise your doctrines for the sake of religious unity. Do you understand that? I mean, if you really just pull away all of the trash, that's what it is. I mean, if, you, if you'll do that, if you'll join hands with all of the liberals and all of the infidels, then, then the main flow of Christianity. You know what they'll do? Man, they'll pat you on the back and they'll tell you what a loving person you are and you know you really are a, a true Christian. When in the Philadelphian period, by God's definition, it was a time when brotherly love was measured by holding fast the form of sound words and taking those words and handing them to others around the globe. The Philadelphian period, folks, was when the people on this planet held to one translation of the Bible. They trusted it as their final authority, the Word of God for English-speaking people. They believed every single word. And listen, they were so in love with God and so in love with the people that He died for and the book that He gave them. You know what they did? By the thousands and thousands and thousands they left their homes and they left their homelands and took this book to the uttermost part of the earth. Folks, that's what God calls brotherly love. Maybe we might do well to grab a hold of God's definition and spit on the contemporary Christianity of our day's definition. Maybe we could get to the point where we could be a church of brotherly love. We love that book so much and the people Jesus died for that we've got to take it to the ends of the earth. Let me give you a very basic definition of the Philadelphian church period. I told you I was going to work it for a little while because I knew I was going to lose some of you if I just came out with this at the beginning. I'm going to lose you now, right? The definition is really nothing more 
than the King James Bible getting into the hands of the Bible believers who were already doing the job and them obeying the Word of God, taking it to the ends of the earth and making disciples. Did I go too fast there? You got that? The King James Bible getting into the hands of the Bible believers who were already doing the job, them obeying the Word of God, taking it to the ends of the earth, and making disciples. And whereas in the Thyatira and Sardis church periods, through the domination of the Roman Catholic Church, it threw the world into utter darkness, the entrance of the King James Bible came into the world, and it threw the world into blazing light. And I want you to think about this for a minute, folks. Here was, here was the entire world being held in bondage by the Roman Catholic system during the Dark Ages. And have you ever, I mean, has it ever really crystallized in your mind that God used this very book that you and I hold in our hands this morning to bring the people of this planet to salvation? They were brought out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of His dear Son and brought into the blazing, glorious light of God. And when that happened for them, folks, listen. When that happened to those believers in the Philadelphian church period, I want you to know there was a disconnection from this world. They were disconnected from the things of this, this, this world. Those people understood that they were a part of a, of a new family in a new kingdom, and they no longer lived their life for this earthly kingdom. They no longer sought its friendship. They no longer sought for the things that that vie for our attention and, and our affection. They were seeking another kingdom, a kingdom not built with hands, whose builder and maker is God, a kingdom that the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that he was looking at. A kingdom that you cannot see with physical eyes. You've got to see it through the eyes of faith and it's a kingdom that all of the the things in this earthly kingdom keep us blinded to. But oh buddy, listen. I mean, once they got this book and once this book got them, our Bible-believing brothers and sisters in the Philadelphian church period saw that there was really there's really only one reason that we're on this planet. There's only one way as we as children of God can justify our existence on this planet and it's to take this book to the ends of the earth. To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To go and make disciples in all nations. You see, that's what was going on in this planet in the Philadelphian church period. You know what the problem is in Laodicea? Man, we got this book and, and we want to we want to add this in its teaching to our life. It's not our life. We want to add it to everything else that we we've got going. And, hey, and we we really appreciate our salvation. But man, we sure like all the other junk in this other kingdom too. See, that, that's why that's why we're in the condition we're in today. Because the church doesn't respond to this book the way the believers in the Philadelphian period did. It was the golden age of missions, folks. 
And those people didn't, didn't just talk about missions. Those people didn't just pray about missions. And you see, because we're lukewarm Laodiceans, man, listen, we think we've really knocked the big one off spiritually when we, when we come to the point to where we're praying for the world to be saved. There aren't even many Laodiceans that pray that. And so when we get to the point to where we're actually praying for the world to be saved, and we come to a, a missions conference, and all of a sudden our, our heart is touched, and, and we shed a tear, and maybe we'll go for forward at the end of the service and we'll pray that God would send missionaries to the world. And you know what? We get up off of our knees and as Laodiceans, man, we feel like we are so spiritual. Man, here I am crying for the world. Here I am praying for the world when we know good and well that the people that we were praying that God would send to the world wasn't us. Oh God, send missionaries, but not my kids. I love my kids too much. I don't think I could stand that. That's for other people. Who is it for? Oh God, send missionaries, not me. Who is it that's going to go? Now listen, when these people got this book in their hands, and they lived this book, and believed this book, I want you to know something. God used... Those common, common people in those days to preach some of the most uncommon messages that have ever been preached on this planet. And God unleashed His power on their lives in an unbelievable way. And in His strength and His power and His grace, God used those people to literally turn the world upside down for His glory. It was, as we mentioned before, the time of the greatest preaching, the time of the greatest spiritual awakenings of any time in history. More people came to the Lord Jesus Christ during this period of time using this book than any other period of time, and probably all of the periods of time combined wouldn't have equaled what was taking place on this planet in that Philadelphian church period. Folks, missionaries were being sent out throughout the entire world. And it was because they had, look in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, we'll talk in more detail about this next week. But that, that church during that period, they had what the Scripture calls the key of David that opens doors that no man could open and no man could shut. And we've seen, and like I said, we're going to hit this in more detail next week, but we're going to see how the key of David, the key to his relationship, the key to his being the man after God's own heart, was the fact that he loved the Word of God. And you know, they fell in love with that book. And you know what happened? It became the key of David in their hands that unlocked doors all over this entire world. And I want you to know something, folks. We're living in Laodicea, but you get this book in your hand, and you believe this book, and you let it get into you, and you fall in love with it. And you know what? You too will have the key of David, just like those believers in the Philadelphian church period did. And what we find is that God had a, a, he, he had a big plan for that little island nation of England. There was something majorly big that that little island nation was to do as far as the plan of God in this world was concerned. God had given England His Word. 
And England was to take his word through the doors that God was going to fling open to them. And what you see historically during this period of time is you see them doing that. They got this book and, 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 and they fell in love with God and that book so much. They fell in love with the people of this world so much that they did everything within their power to make sure that every person on this planet had the opportunity of hearing the gospel. And God used that little tiny island nation which in land mass isn't even as big as the state of Ohio. And what you see from that little English nation taking their English Bible to the ends of the earth, missionaries were going out of there. They were taking that King James Bible and they would use it as the textbook to teach the people of this world English, but the reason they were teaching them English is so they could teach them this book, so that they could come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And listen, because England was faithful to that book, she becomes, through the British Empire, the greatest nation on the earth. Now you won't learn that out of an encyclopedia. You'll learn that from believing what the book says in Revelation chapter 3. I mean, you'd never go to an encyclopedia and have them tell you that the reason that England dominated the world was because of her belief in God and this book. But the truth is, England had the key of David. And the door to the world was open to them. And that's why you hear of the nation of English, uh, England, the old adage, the sun never sets on the Roman Empire. You know why? Because during the Philadelphian church age, England comes to the place that she owns one-fourth of the world's landmass. Over 700,000 people were British subjects. Their base stretched from Greenwich, England, to Gibraltar, to Halifax, Ottawa, Vancouver, Wellington, Hong Kong, Singapore, Calcutta, Bombay, Alexandria, Malta, Africa, India, Canada, Australia, China, and the Falkland Islands. And every single king and queen in those places was placed there by British authority. And I'm telling you, as long as England held this book, as long as England believed this book, as long as England stood for this book, the door was open and there was no limit to what could be accomplished for the Lord Jesus Christ. But that was what was going on in England. But God's also got some unbelievable plans for another nation during their Philadelphian church period. God knows that because of England's size and her, her lack of natural resources and her position in the world geographically and most importantly some choices that she would make, God knew that there would be a limit to how far England would actually be able to go, would be able to take the gospel. So God's got another nation that at the beginning of the Philadelphian church period, I mean, this is, this is mind-boggling, but at the beginning of the Philadelphian church period, this nation had not even been pulled together yet. And I mean, think about it. Here was this, this planet with this, this piece of property that is sitting there basically uninhabited for 5,600 years. A, a piece of property that is more rich in natural resources probably than any other place on this planet. It's a wide open land, virtually uninhabited. There's pockets of American Indians spread out across the land, but it's a wide open land. And we don't have time to get into all of it right now, but in Genesis chapter 9, verse 27, Noah gives a very interesting prophecy concerning two of his, 
his sons that, that's pretty interesting to trace through history. It says, God shall enlarge Japheth. And Japheth is really the progenitor of Gentile Europeans. And Noah says, God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And in 1604, Japheth got enlarged as Gentile Europeans began to come into this country. And for the next hundred years, you know what was happening? Japheth fought a battle to put Shem out of his tents. And what was happening, though, is this nation was being forged into a place of religious freedom. It was being forged into a place of religious freedom to be a base from which God would work to reach the world with the gospel in the last 400 years of the church age. And I want you to know something. We don't have time to walk through all of it, but God had chosen America. And God had reserved America and preserved America and protected her. I mean, you can watch historically how God was making sure that the Roman Catholic Church didn't get a foothold in this country. And we covered this in church history in some detail, how when Columbus was coming here, he didn't actually end up in North America. And you know what? Every place that Columbus, Magellan, Balboa, every place those guys hit within the next hundred years would become the Roman Catholic State Church in those countries. God was protecting this country. And here comes these, these guys. You know why those pilgrims are coming over in 1604? You remember this, don't you? They came to escape Roman Catholic persecution. God's protecting that, that nation. And after they came and began to settle in Plymouth, the nation was, was being founded there in that, that first 150 years or so. And, and you know what? During that period of time, this nation was too weak to protect itself. Man, there's some, there's some strong Roman Catholic places like Spain you better watch out for. And so you, during that 150 years that is just getting started, this country was protected by Britain. And then by 1776, America won her independence. And it was at this place that she was able to begin to defend herself. But what you begin to watch happen in this country is it flows and, and follows a, a pattern that God has laid out through his entire word, and it's, it's consistent all through history. He moves through this country from east to west. From east to west. In 1639, we see the first Baptist church in America organized by a man by the name of John Clark in Rhode Island. John Clark was an Anabaptist. His heritage, he was a Waldensian. And Baptist churches from that place on that east coast begin to spread all across this entire country. That's why in the Bible Belt today, that's why you find so many Baptist churches. Because the Baptist church was just spreading across this country like wildfire. And you see that what was going on is that America, uh, that America held a very important place in God's mind as far as the spread of the gospel is concerned. I mean, th this country was set up constitutionally for it. God blessed it economically to do it. It had the natural resources to do it. And it had the Bible to do it. And America was doing it. And God blessed America. And God strengthened America. And she soon became the most powerful nation in the world. And folks, listen. God raised up out of America some of the greatest preachers and missionaries the world has ever seen. 
ever in all of human history. The greatest missionaries coming right out of this very country. America experienced some of the greatest revivals that this world has ever known. Some of the greatest moves of the, of the spirit that the world has ever known. And America had the key of David and the door of the church in America was open and millions and millions of people came under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God. People were repenting of their sin and in faith they called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to save them. And He did. And I'm telling you, it was just unbelievable the things that God was doing to that little tiny island nation of England and then the newest nation on the entire earth, the United States of America. And you can go back and see it and read it and we're going to have to really hustle through this, but I want you to begin to see what God was doing in some of the lives of those people back in those days when they got this book. How it changed their life. How it changed the, the, the course and direction. How this book was the key of David in their life. Men like Count Zinzendorf. He lived from 1700 to 1760. He, he begins a missionary movement through the Moravians I never heard of the Moravian Church until I until I came to this area, and my goodness, you go back and you read their history and you see what is taking place. And if you're Moravian here this morning, hey, God bless you. You got a wonderful, wonderful heritage. But I'm telling you, that church is so far away from what it was at one point. I mean, these were these were people who, in the the beginning stages under Count Zinzendorf, man, when nobody else on this planet had a vision for the world. The Moravians did. I mean, they were the, the forerunners of the mission societies. Zinzendorf had a vision for reaching the world and he was training men and women to go to the world. Zinzendorf and, and his followers stood for the banishment from the world to be able to reach it for Christ. You hearing that? You, see, you can't find that in Laodicea. People want to live like the world and reach it too. Or just live like the world. But what these—you go back and you read the lot. What they believed is that if we were going to reach the world, we we're going to have to be something different than the world was. The reason we can't reach the world in the Laodicean period is we're so much like them. I mean, there, there's records where Moravian missionaries, listen, sold themselves into slavery to reach the black man for Christ. And we're, we're worried about leaving our homeland, leaving a few comforts. Literally sold themselves into slavery to reach people with the gospel. Have you ever loved people like that? Their, their coat of arms was an altar with an ox and a plow with a motto that said, ready for either. And what that meant was they were willing to to be hitched to a plow and and plow the unfurled fields of the world with with the gospel or they were willing to be laid down on the altar of God as a sacrifice ready for either it doesn't matter all i want to be is used for God and man i'm telling you that's that's what was going on in the Philadelphian church period. Man, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if somehow in the midst of Laodicea 
people of this church might understand what they've got when they hold this book in their hand and understand that because of the Lord Jesus Christ that lives in our hearts, we are no longer connected to this world system. We're pilgrims and strangers here anyway. And God, any way that you want to use me, whether it by life or by death, use me to take this book to the ends of the earth to tell somebody else about the same message that changed my life. Richard Baxter, 1615 to 1691. He's an English preacher. The theme of his life was, listen, I preached never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. <laughs> you know, we, we live in Laodicea. People come to pulpits and, well, you know, you know, and it, it's stories and it's... Oh, Richard Baxter said, oh, I, I preach like it's the last time I'm ever going to preach in my life. I, I preach like a dying man to a dying man. You know what? If we'd all just come to the... You know, we, we've got some people that have got cancer around here right now. You know what? We're all dying. Every one of us. Take that book and give it to people like a dying man because everybody that you see is on their way to a Christless, godless hell unless somebody will give them the message of this book. And there's John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, spent most of his life in prison for his, his stand for Christ. Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 1758. This is a man that was used in an unbelievable way in the colonies of, of America to preach the gospel. Here was a guy who had the power of God on his life, folks. Uh, some of you may know about Jonathan Edwards. He, he, he's famous for a, a sermon that he preached that was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached that sermon and he talks about the fact that he purposely read it in monotone so that people didn't just get stirred because of the emotion in his address. He so had the power of God, however, as he read the sermon in monotone, people were screaming out in the middle of the church service, Is there no way of escape? They're holding, literally, holding on to the pews and grabbing a hold of the pillars, thinking that they were about to drop into hell from that very room. Man, you talk about the power of God. Colossians chapter 3 says, If you then be risen with Christ, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Set your affection on things above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. You know why it tells you on the right hand of God? Because as you take it through the Word of God, what you'll find out is the right hand is the right hand of power. Right hand of power. You know why Laodiceans have no power? We don't seek the things above. We set our affection on things of the world. But, oh, buddy, here's Jonathan Edwards with the power of God on his life. He lit the, the first great torch, or the, the, the torch for the first great awakening in New England. Then there's John Wesley, 1703 to 1791. He founds the Methodist movement. He, he does most of his preaching in England. He travels over 250,000 miles on horseback 
and preaches over 42,000 sermons. He reads, writes 233 books and pamphlets on horseback. I mean, you talk about commitment, man. George Whitfield, 1714 to 1717. He's called the Prince of Preachers. The man preached seven times a day. He would preach until his throat would literally bleed. He was greatly used of God in the early days of this country to keep this place straight. Ben Franklin, who never was saved as far as I know, he was a deist. He said, when I go to hear him preach, I leave my money at home because I would give him every dime that I have. Ben Franklin said that one night, he said, I spaced off the distance of one mile. I could hear every single word of his sermon clearly. One time, George Whitfield's up there preaching and a man pulls out a gun and he says, you stop that preaching or I'm going to pump you full of lead. And he just goes on and says, hey, I'm going to finish my sermon. You just do whatever you need to do. And he just goes on and preaching. And while he's preaching the sermon, the guy is walking around him, putting that gun on different parts of his body while he's preaching the sermon. And he's just working that thing, buddy. And finally, the guy takes a few steps back and pulls the trigger on that thing. It explodes in his hand, blows the shirt off George Whitfield, and blows the guy's hands off. And he finished the sermon. Whitfield came to Boston. A scholarly pastor greeted him there at the docks and said, I'm sorry to see you here, Mr. Whitfield. Whitfield said, so is the devil. And went and began preaching the, de preaching the devil out of that, that part of the world, buddy. I mean, the power of God. I mean, it was just on these men's lives. And, and I'll tell you this, and, and I'm not trying to be offensive unnecessarily to you. We're, we're back in a time here in the Philadelphian church period where the power of God was manifest on people's lives. I mean, like at no other time. And what is interesting to me is that we are living in a time right now where people in the Laodicean period who live lush lifestyles claim to have the power of God on their life. And they're doing all kinds of things in the Laodicean church period that you can't find anybody that had the power of God on their life in the Philadelphian period doing. Now, you know what? I'm just telling you, if I'm in that movement, I'm going to just step back and say, you know what? That is bizarre, isn't it? That the greatest period of church history didn't manifest all of this shenanigans that goes on. You know, it's just pretty simple when you understand history, isn't it? When he was about to die, people came outside of the bedroom where he was laying dying, and he was preaching from his bed. His last words were, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields, seal the truth, and come home to die. I mean, do you, do you see what I'm saying? This is all that mattered. It, it, was, it, was, it was life. David Brainerd, 1718 to 1747. He, he died as an old man at age 29. He was a missionary to American Indians. You can go back and read his diary, as many have done. I, I've, I've gone back. And the thing that, that just blessed me so much is I'm, as I'm reading the, 
the diary of David Brainerd is he's talking about the Indians and he calls them my Indians. My Indians. There's accounts of him being so sick and so fevered that he would be praying in deep snow and his body would melt the snow and he would be kneeling in pools of water. And you know what? In his life, he never did really see any great harvest. I mean, he dies a broken down man at 29 years of age. But you know what? A little later on, a man by the name of William Carey is going to read his diary and he is going to be so stirred by the things that he reads and the commitment of that man for Christ and the vision that he had for reaching the world that he's going to sell himself out to go be a missionary to India. Robert McShane was going to read that diary and see his life and his burden and he would go out to reach the Jews. Henry Martin read his passion and he went to India. God never really used his life, but you know what God used? God used his burden. And maybe you're not some real talented person. Maybe you don't have all the gifts that maybe somebody else has got, but I, I, I tell you what, if you'll just get a burden, just a burden for reaching people with the gospel. You know what? God will use your burden. Robert Morrison, 1782 to 1834, he's a missionary to China. He lived in a cellar for 35 years. And you know what he did for 35 solid years? He took the King James Bible and he translated into other dialects. Peter Parker, another missionary to China. Sam Knott, missionary to India. Wilfred Grinfell, missionary to Newfoundland. And I mean, you can just go through all of these guys' lives. Their lives, their sacrifice, just unbelievable. I mean, this was when missions was missions. People had the Bible and they believed the Bible and, and God set before them an open door. Adoniram Judson, he was a missionary to Burma, a guy that was greatly used of God. He said this, I will not leave Burma until the cross of Calvary is planted firmly forever. And 30 years after his death, there's 63 Baptist churches and 165 missionaries that are sent out from his missionary, uh, from his ministry. His wife, she dies on the field along with her two daughters. He has to sit on her grave for two solid days so that the natives would not dig her body up and eat it. I mean, this you see, I'm trying to show you that it cost them something. It wasn't just, hey, this is great lifestyle to go out here. I mean. It didn't matter what the cost was. There was no cost too great to get this Bible out. William Carey, he's called the, mod, the father of modern missions. He, he reads about the Moravian missionaries. And he's so gripped that he spends 42 years in England without a furlough. He taught himself six languages and translated the King James Bible into 44 languages and dialects. Robert Moffat. He spends 54 years in Cape Town, South Africa. He has eight children. Three of them died on the mission field. He has to scoop out their graves with his own hands. Five of his kids, five of the, the ones that lived, remained missionaries to Africa. I mean, just, you just see it over and over and over again. George Mueller, 1805 to 1898 built in his lifetime five major orphanages. He prayed in $7.5 million and he never gave away a Jesus first pin in that whole time. He fed 2,000 orphans a day, distributed 11 million gospel tracts, 
300,000 Bibles, supported 163 missionaries, read through the Bible over 200 times, and 100 of them on his knees. He said that he estimated in his life that he had over 10,000 answers to prayer that were specifically answered by God. David Livingston, he traveled over 9,000 miles in 16 years on foot through the interior of Africa. When he died, the Africans loved him so much that they literally cut out his heart and buried it in Africa. They sent his body back to England to be buried. You know why they cut his heart out and put it there? Because that's where his heart was with those people. Let me ask you something. If they were going to bury your heart today, where would they bury it? Where's your heart? Some of our hearts would be buried in the mall, wouldn't they? The golf course, our house. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, plants 205 churches, sends out 849 missionaries. John Getty, missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. Listen. You can go to his grave today, and the tombstone reads, listen, when he landed here in 1848, there were no Christians. When he left here in 1872, there were no heathen. Man. They got this book. And when they got it, they did something with it. We've been in the layout of sea in church period now for the last 100 years. But we've got this book, y'all. Now the only question is, what are you going to do with it? A little longer than normal today, wasn't it? I, I felt like we needed to to just look at the Philadelphian church period because we are that seventh period, the Laodicean period, if you don't already know that. And what the, the, the Bible says is true of us is we think that we see, but we're blind. And if you want to know, know what I was trying to accomplish this morning, what I was trying to do is just give us a little bit of a glimpse of the power that this book had and why it is that we're sitting here in America with this book in our hands in 1997. I'm just telling you, y'all, we don't get it, do we? We don't get it. Church is a Sunday gig. 
we get ourselves all doodadded up, we get up early, go to put our time in, and then we bounce back out into real life. Man, what I'm praying God will do in this church is He'll get us to the point to where this is our life. America, I'm just telling you, I, I, it's done. Okay, there, America isn't going to have a nationwide revival. It's already happened. But I will tell you this. There can still be pockets. People who let this book be unleashed in their life and do with it what God's people did with it when they got it back in the Philadelphian church period. And, and you'll notice, those of you who have been here through each of these letters that we've been looking at in Revelation, you'll notice that we, we, we went a little bit of a different way. We, we really didn't go through line upon line, verse by verse through it, like, like we had the others. You know why? Because next Sunday... Next Sunday, we're going we're gonna to go back to the Philadelphian church period, but we're not going to talk about it from a historical standpoint and all of the things that were taking place there. You know what we're going to do next Sunday? We're going to go through, line by line, through the Philadelphian church period. And I'm going to show you why. Why God was able to do with them what He was able to do. And we're going to approach it next Sunday from the standpoint of we're a church in the Laodicean church period that's looking back saying that's what it was supposed to be. So God, how can we get ourselves back to where we can be what you want us to be? And we've got a team that's going out next Sunday morning to the ends of the earth. And it's, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's perfect. The only thing that isn't perfect is the team has to leave a little bit earlier than any team has ever had had to leave and in order to to really go to the Philadelphia and the letter to the church at Philadelphia and get what we need to get as a church and I'm telling you next week is I'm I'm scared to death about it because I feel like we are going to become so accountable as a church that after this we'll have no excuses no excuses we can't just say oh we're lay out of scenes no we're going to go back and we're going to see what it was that made this, this, that church such an unbelievable thing. But in order to do it, we're going to have to change our schedule just a little bit next week. Uh, we're going to have one service next Sunday morning. It'll begin at 9 o'clock at the time that the Sunday school hour starts. We'll have our worship. We'll have the message. And then we're going to send this, this team out next Sunday morning. Um, so that they can get to the airport and do what, what needs to be done and all of that. Nine o'clock next, next Sunday morning. But I'm telling you, I believe that probably of, of everything that we will cover in our entire study of the book of Revelation, if we, if we do indeed get to complete it before the rapture actually happens, but I believe this, that next Sunday will probably be the most important message that we have. Because I, I feel like God is going to allow us the privilege of being able to see what it's going to take if we're really going to be able to do with that book what He wants this church to do with it. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, oh, let me tell you, 
you're blessed. And I hope you can see this by being born in America, a country that was founded because of this book and what God was wanting to use this nation to do with this book. And God brought you to this place today, not just to learn a history lesson, but to learn a spiritual lesson. And that is that the God of this universe loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son so that you could have your sin removed and you could be a part of his family. And he wants to do that in your life. That's what life is really all about. And if you are here this morning and you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, our pastors are going to be on either side of the, the front of our, our worship center as this service comes to a conclusion. I, I recognize this morning that we haven't preached a, a, a message as, as such concerning your specific need to receive Jesus Christ, but I'll just tell you this. Every time that book goes out, the Spirit of God works, and we've seen people saved in unbelievable services around here. And if God is speaking to your heart right now, the Bible says today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your heart. And so today, if the Lord is speaking to you, would you come and would you receive Him as your personal Savior? Let's stand together with our heads bowed.